1 Samuel 17, 4 through 11, and then we skip down to 32 to 49. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly distressed. Now we go down to verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck both down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and then he took his staff. In his hand, he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, I'll strike you down, and I'll cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves 
not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And when the Philistine arose and he came and he drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. This is the word of our God. Yes, Susan said as she went out, that's a good story. I bet she was glad she got to read that one this time. Uh, yeah, that's a great story. I would have liked to have printed the whole story, but uh, it was long enough, wasn't it? We skipped a lot of it. There's, it's a very important story given a lot of space in uh, the story about David there. It's the first real story about David after he's been, you know, uh, found anointed to be the king, and we know he's a poet, that he can play music, but then now we see him coming in to rescue the people. It's a story about heroes. We love stories about heroes, don't we? Every Every year we have the brand new Marvel comic book movie that's about heroes, right? Some kind of superhero, uh, 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 Iron Man or whomever else it might be that comes out every year. I was amazed when I was looking to find out all these uh, Marvel comic story uh, movies. It's been a plethora of these in the last 15 years. There were none for many years before that. But now people love to hear stories about these heroes. What kind of heroes do you like? Well, maybe we like these, uh, these, these heroes with great superpowers, but the most famous of all the heroes is not really so much Superman as it is someone like Batman who doesn't have any, like, special powers. Or we like uh, Spider-Man because before he turns into, he's, you know, be, before he gets all these special powers, he's just Peter, Peter Parker. Or, and in, in literature, we love stories about unexpected heroes. In fact, one of them that I really love is the story about the Lord of the Rings. Have you guys read that trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien or perhaps seen the movies? I hope you do. It's fantastic fantastic literature, and it's a story where J.R.R. Tolkien, who was an expert in medieval, medieval literature, created a, a whole new, uh, um, you know, new mythology uh, to sort of build up this whole idea of heroes, and he used a lot of regular kinds of heroes in ancient literature, like, you know, like elves and, uh, uh, you know, like these great men of renown and, uh, and these dwarves, people that were part of literature, but then he invented a new kind of person who had not been in any kind of ancient literature. He wasn't an orc, a bad guy, or any of those sorts of things. Who were these people? They were little hobbits, right? With not much special power. He wasn't copying an old kind of hero. He was making a new kind of hero. And so we have in the first book, we have that great story about the, the fellowship of the ring as the, as the little tribe makes their way to go to, uh, go to uh, figure out what to do with this great ring, which is going to be the ring of rulership over the whole world. And we have this great council at Elrond there where they decide what they're going to do. And the hobbits have already done their job, Frodo and his friends, Merry and Pippin. Have you guys, you guys with me a little bit? Yeah. Uh, and and they're, they're sort of on the outskirts of the thing. And all these great men are talking about what are we going to do to try to deal with this ring. And so the implication is that maybe Boromir or, or one of the, or no, the elves, Legolas, or, or one of the, one of the, uh, one of the, one of the uh, dwarves. Gimli are going to, you know, take charge of it because these hobbits have just brought the ring to this point. Their job is done, right? And Frodo is sitting there on this side, and as he realizes what's going on, he has the courage to say, I'll take the job, right? No one expects this, 
you know, halfling to carry the, the, uh, the, the ring all the way to Mount Doom. And so we have this long adventure where the least likeliest of heroes is the one specially fitted for the task because he's not, he's not uh, as attracted to the power that it gives, that it, that it would give to someone with more power to go with. And so Frodo becomes the one. He's a great hero. Well, in the, New Te- in the Bible, we have this great hero named David. And he is such an important figure in the Old Testament story. In fact, there is more written about the life and times of David than any other Old Testament character. There's, it's a huge amount of information. We learn so much about him, his life and his exploits, his time on the run, what it was like for him to be a king, his poetry. Much is written about this guy, David. He was a great king of Israel. And so when we first meet him here in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17, when we meet him in this story, I should say, we find that he's not a king yet at all. Yes, it's true that sometime before this, Samuel the judge had secretly uh, anointed him so that he would be the next king, but, but no one besides David and his family knew that. Yes, it's true that Saul, who had, because the spirit had gone from him, Saul had had uh, evil spirits tormenting him, and David, who was a, an excellent musician, a harpist, or a, 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 he played, the, played the, the harp, which would be like an old-fashioned guitar, uh, he would come and he'd play soothing music, but D- Saul didn't even really know who he was. He didn't really even know who he was. He just played music, just a musician there. And now, here it is that they've got this tremendous battle when all the great kings around them, all the great people of the Israelites and the Philistines, there's having this great battle that's being set up, and into this story walks David. This is a a story about courage and what it means to really be a champion. Everyone wants to have the courage of a champion, to face our fears, to conquer our giants, to succeed against all obstacles, to be a true hero. This is probably why the story of David and Goliath is known probably by most anybody who knows anything of the Bible. They know something about this story of David and Goliath. But what does this story really teach us about the courage of champions and about the nature of true heroism? It doesn't necessarily teach us what we sort of think it may teach us. So let's sort of work our way through this story as best we can. And I couldn't print the whole thing in there in your worship notes for you, uh, but you can, of course, read it out of, out of your own Bible. But this is a story that helps us know something about the difference between false courage and true courage. Want to be champions and true champions. So let's take a look, first of all, at the false courage of Goliath, the Philistine champion. He's referred to as a, as a champion. I'm going to have a difficult time keeping my notes from going everywhere on me today, uh, on my, my scriptures, I should say. So we read about uh, 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 Goliath in the opening sections of this verse, and he is representative of the false courage of the Philistine champion. His name is Goliath. In fact, he's generally just referred to as the Philistine. Now, here's the situation. The, the main foes of the Israelites were these Philistines. During the course of the book of the Judges, often the Israelites were literally under the control of the Philistines. 
When Samson, that other great, famous, or infamous hero of the Bible, had his major exploits, they were against the Philistines. So these Philistines were very powerful people, technologically advanced, wealthy people there in the land of Canaan. And there was tremendous conflict between them. And so as this story begins, we see that verses 1 and 2 lay out the scene. And what we see if we start to read this text is that they are ready to rumble. (laughs) That's what's going on here. Look at what it says. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Did you get the picture? You got these two uh, armies lined up on one mountain versus the other hand, mountain, and there is going to be bloodshed in the valley between them. The Bible writer is giving us this dramatic picture. The Philistines are on one hill, the Israelites on the other a valley between them, a very dramatic scene. It's it's an arena. It's a steel cage. It's the ultimate fighting, what UFC. It's whatever it is. They're gathered together. It's going to be happening there. And there is a battle between two warring camps when out of one's camp comes this massive man, his name, Goliath. Goliath, Goliath, would be we'd say it if we said it more naturally. And he is the one who he actually calls out to the Israelites and basically says, I'm calling you out. I'm the champion representing my people. I want a champion from your people. Let's have it out right here in whoever wins. I mean, this is a, there's lots of machismo in this, right? This is Gladiator. You know, this is William Wallace. This is uh, these great stories uh, that people love of these uh, times in the arena when they're going to capture uh, uh, man, mano a mano, strength against strength. That's the way this story is. He's set up as a man of extreme courage, a great man. And that's often what we think of when we think of heroism. People with profound abilities, whether technological or physical or athletic or wealth, whatever they have, these tremendous resources. And Goliath is set up that way. He's the champion, it says there. Let's read on a little bit. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. That is a long description about this man marching forward with the shield-bearer in front of him. He's huge. Huge. He's enormous. He's got it going. And he's, he's standing before these people, challenging them. And the writer of 1 Samuel is trying to give us a great picture of how impressive this man is. In fact, he's almost creating a caricature like the you know, transformers that turn into large, massive things, that, the way he's talking about this. He's, a, he's called a champion. Now, the champions in those days don't just mean that they had won lots of fights in the back in the past. No, these were 
selected representatives for the people. The champion was the man between. That's the actual literal translation of the word. He was the man between. He was the man who stood up on behalf of his people to represent them before the enemy. He's the man in between, the one in between, the one who goes forward into the fray, into the valley of death. The champion is a representative. It doesn't just mean, as I said, that he had won a lot of battles. It means that you are the one who fights on behalf of your people. He bears the weight of responsibility for all of his people. If he wins, his people win. If he loses, his people lose. He's called not so much Goliath, though he's named that. He's called the Philistine. Because in him, all the Philistines are uh, represented. What happens to him happens to them. Now, you're going to be watching the Olympics here in a little while, and you're going to see uh, somebody that will be swimming on the swimming team. Maybe it will be Michael Phelps or one of these guys, and you'll be there, and you'll be sitting in your couch, popcorn in hand, and you'll be cheering for who? Generally, the guy that represents your country, right? Or the gal that represents your country. Because when they win, you win, right? We win. You didn't do anything. In fact, all you do is eat popcorn. You turn the TV on. You you should have got some exercise. But his victory, her victory, is attributed to you. So we say we won 17 medals. What do you mean we won 17 medals so far? No, we didn't win a single medal. Those people won, but in their win, we win. Do you catch the idea of this? This is how this story is set up in that time. It's not just a man against another man. It's a country against another country. It's a one man representing all that. He bears the weight uh, of all that. He was probably eight feet tall. Eight feet tall. Now, that's tall in our day, but it's especially tall in that day when the average man was, was more like five feet three, five feet two. Those of us who are shorter, we kind of like that, right? That's what men are supposed to be, right? They've just been getting taller all along. Uh, very, it was very rare for it to be any, anyone to be over six feet tall. He's eight feet tall. And he also, so he's the largest man around. He's massive. He's Andre the Giant, right? You remember that, 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 that guy? And uh, he has, he, and not only that, he's full of the most advanced military hardware, high tech. 125 pounds of armor on him, and it's made out of bronze. No one had that titanium stuff back then. That was the true good stuff. If it was a bicycle, it would be carbon fiber, right? Or titanium. You know, he was the most advanced. He had, he had, his, he had this a bronze armor, a javelin. The point of his spear weighed 20 pounds. Imagine that. Yeah. The, uh, uh, an Old Testament commentary on said it is very rare to receive this kind of dramatic description of what a person looked like. You don't know. We don't know what Abraham looked like. We don't know what Moses really looked like. But we know what Goliath looked like, right? Because the guy who wrote, the, uh, the, 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 the writer of this, wanted us to know what kind of a, of a man this was. And one commentator wrote this. He said, The thematic purpose of this exceptional attention to physical detail is obvious. Goliath moves into the action like a man of iron and bronze, an almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero, a hulking monument to an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power. 
Did you catch all those words? You get that? All those words to say the writer is wanting you to see this guy represents all the best the world has to offer. And so this is the guy who comes up. He had such great bravery, and yet, as you know, the story doesn't end well for Goliath, does it? Because there was another kind of power at work. And so you see very often in the Scriptures, it is not the most powerful who seem to be the ones who really accomplish the great things. All those things that we think are so important to our personal identity and self and ability to be champions in this world often don't amount to nearly so much. And in fact, this guy's uh, physical prowess technological ability. I mean, he walks down there not by himself, but in full armor, and not alone, but with an armor bearer. He then becomes oblivious to the danger around him. And if you remember in this story, he's not even see the danger right in front of him because he's been blinded by the strengths in his own. He maximizes his position, and he minimizes his danger, right? And that's what often we do. Goliath had a false courage He was the Philistine champion, and he was a failure. And the Bible wants us to see the dramatic way that the kingdom of God works differently than the kingdoms of this world. Remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate, he looked as though he had no power. He had nothing. Even his followers had left him. And Pilate, who represented the apex of military power, said, don't you know I have the power to kill you? And what did Jesus say? You would have no power except for that which God gave to you. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. What did he mean? My kingdom, which is for this world, does not utilize the power-grubbing tactics of this world. It's a different kind of animating power. It's the power of the Spirit and the power of self-sacrifice. I'm going to conquer Rome by letting Rome apparently conquer me. I'm going to conquer the religious powers that are trying to kill me in this day by letting those religious powers condemn me to death. And in the midst of that, I will then rise victorious out of it. See, the courage that God is developing in this story, it goes all the way back to Abraham, and long even before that is a very different kind of courage. We're not there yet, though. Let's go number two. Away from the false courage of Goliath, the Philistine champion, and briefly to the failed courage of Saul, the Israelite champion. Now think about this. The failed courage of Saul, the Israelite champion. When we are reading about this story, we will realize that um, that Saul is the most natural person to have represented Israel in front of Goliath. Right? Were you reading? Did any of you notice when you read a week or so ago in the book of First Samuel in the ninth chapter? that Saul was listed as the tallest guy in all Israel. 
So he's the king. He's the tallest. He's the natural representative of Israel. And that's what the writer is wanting us to see a little bit, is that the chosen king, the one who's supposed to be representing Israel, cannot represent Israel. He's going to need a substitute to come in his place. That guy is not going to be the guy anybody expects. His name is David. That's what's kind of going on in the story. You see, Saul, as you read about him, was a very impressive person. As I mentioned before, the Bible rarely describes the physical characteristics of people. We don't know much about a lot of people, but it says about us that Saul was de- de- described as a, as a man of breeding, a man of wealth. He was the handsome man, and he was the tallest man in all of Israel. First Samuel 9, listen to what it says. This is when Samuel is first, excuse me, Saul is first brought into the story. Saul is the current king of Israel, by the way. David will be the next king after him. Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, okay, uh, a man of wealth. This is a man of wealth. His name is Kish. He's got a, an, a, a, an impressive pedigree. Verse 2. And this man, this man of wealth, had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Oh, it's obvious what's going on here. The guy who should be standing up and representing Israel before Goliath is none other than the king of Israel himself. His name is Saul. But in, and he had, he had been a very success, successful soldier, had many great campaigns. He was physically opposing. He was their champion. He was their protector. He was their defender. But the Bible tells us very clearly, it says this, Saul... And all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Terrified. His courage had failed him in the midst of his in the midst of this challenge. And so he was afraid. He was hiding out. He wasn't willing to represent represent uh, the, 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 people, uh, the people before, uh, before the Lord. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That's how the story sets itself up. Well, then David, of course, shows up, and then David shows up in, 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 the, per, in the presence of Saul. And so what does Saul do? But Saul ultimately gives to David his armor. What does Saul think he's doing? He thinks he's showing a lamb to lions, <laughs> Right? He's thinking he's just, this guy's crazy enough to do that. That's just fine with me. I don't know. This has been going for 40 days too long. Dave, Saul uh, had laid aside his armor. Goliath was so impressed by his armor. But what did David do but walk in there with no armor? You see the courage of what's going on here? Yeah. They had all lost their heart. Verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail become because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Saul is the voice of reason saying, David, don't you try that. But you see that Dave, Saul's uh, courage has already 
failed him. He's the failed champion. He's the failed champion. He's lost his courage as the Israelite uh, champion. Yes. But then we, so we see then his heart had been retreating away from the, the battle, whereas Goliath's heart had brought him straight into the, the battle. But both of these are the wrong way to approach courage. Let's look finally then at the faithful courage of the substitute champion. The faithful courage of the substitute champion. His name was David. And he, unlike Saul, was not ready to wear that armor. He wasn't used to it. It wasn't right for him. It says that he put no trust in his armor. Goliath, it seems, has minimized the danger and is in a difficult spot. Saul has maximized the danger, and he's running away from that. But David has a special kind of courage, and what does it come? He realizes that this is a battle not between two armies, but between two gods. And he has the confidence that the God of Israel will not allow his, his, um, uh, his name to be defamed. So we see the unwavering courage, the faithful courage of David. Saul gives up his armor, and Goliath puts on too, uh, too much. David says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant uh, will, will, will lead the people against that, uh, against, the, against the Philistine. Yes, Saul was a failed champion. Goliath was a false champion, but David is a faithful champion. What does David do? But he walks in front of Saul excuse me, once in front front of Goliath, and let's pick up the story. The Philistine moved forward and came to near to David with his shield bearer in front of him, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for his buddy youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to me, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, (laughs) and I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the field, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly, he's talking about his own people as well as theirs, will know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." David walks in there with nothing but the stones of his sling, which were a very, uh, very powerful weapon, which he, of course, used there, standing in front, standing in front of this great, uh, this great warrior, and he understands that God is going to give to him that victory. And then, of course, as you know, Goliath begins to step forward. David takes that sling. It, would have been, it, wouldn't be, it wasn't like this. It was when he rolled around like this. And, the, and the, the tribe of Benjamin was well known for their skill with a slingshot. You read about that earlier, probably, if you're reading through the Bible with this. And he was able to throw that uh, stone right in the one spot between the eyes of Goliath. He falls over dead, and David becomes Israel's champion. David is the one who was the substitute who stepped in in order to save the people. But how did he save it? Through powerful strength and through personal abilities? No, but by trusting in the Lord, his 
God. He came before Goliath in weakness and was able to conquer uh, conquer Goliath through the strength of the God of Israel. This story lets us know what kind of man and what kind of king David is going to be. You know, David is the one who was the champion in the Old Testament, but I believe he begins to look forward to another champion in the New Testament whose name was Jesus, who is a son of David. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus walked into the valley like David walked into the valley. Jesus defeated the ultimate giant of sin and death, and he didn't go in with armor and sword and shield, but in weakness, just like David did. And instead of killing that giant, Jesus was apparently killed by that giant, only to rise again victorious over, defeating the great enemies of sin and death itself. That's why in the book of Hebrews in the 12th chapter, it says, looking on, uh, I, I, I rely on my memory sometimes. Um, the first verse, seeing also we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. He's speaking about these great men of faith, including David. This is Hebrews chapter 12, immediately following the 11th chapter. Seeing also we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race marked out for us. Looking unto Jesus, the author of and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set on the right hand of the Father in heaven. When it says Jesus is the author, it, the Greek version actually is saying Jesus is the champion. Jesus is the one who led the way for us. And as we look to Jesus, we can have the courage of Jesus to face the challenges of our, of our lives. As Jesus laid down his life only to emerge victorious, we can lay aside the weapons of this world in order to conquer this world through the love and sacrificial love like Jesus did for us. Yeah, and there's a, a, a beautiful little story at the end of the Lord of Rings that I was thinking about as I was preparing this talk for you today, and it involves one of the few women in this story. Her name is Eowyn, and uh, she's a, a, a beautiful uh, person in the story. And later on in the story, in the, in the third book of the story, there's this uh, scene where Eowyn's uncle, her beloved uncle, is killed by one of the terrible Nazguls, these riders of death, killed by that. She's in the war because she's pretending to be a guy. No one knows. She's, she's a girl. And so she begins now, uh, to, she sees that the, her uncle has been cast down. He's, he's dying. He's going to die. And she begins to jump off of her, uh, off of her uh, horse, and she begins to try to confront this terrifying Nazgul all on her own. And the Nazgul, she stands between the king and the Nazgul. The Nazgul says this. I took this out of the book. Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured, and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. <laughs> in other words, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to take you off and torture you if you don't get out of my way. Eowyn says, a sword, uh, Eowyn, it says this about Eowyn, a sword rang as it was drawn. Do what you will, but I will hinder it. 
Be gone if you be not deathless, for living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. Her eyes, uh, Tolkien says, gray as the sea, were hard and fell, and yet tears were on her cheek. A sword was in her hand, and she raised her shield against the horror of her enemy's eyes. She stands in front of her uncle, dying in the face of this terrible death. And ultimately then, the Nazgul does take her life in the story. Now, what we discover is right next to them, there is one of these hobbits, not Frodo, not Sam, not Pippin, but Meriadoc, Mary. And when Mary sees the courage of Eowyn and this tremendous show of valor, Mary had been hiding because of the terrible ugliness of this fiend that was coming after them. He was overcome by that, but then he stopped when he saw Eowyn. He hadn't known she was there. He thought he was her brother, but she was a girl. He, he knew her, of course, but he didn't know that was her. And when he saw her, it says about him, Mary's amazement conquered Mary's fear. Pity filled his heart and great wonder, and suddenly the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his hand. She should not die so fair, so desperate. At least she should not die alone, unaided. And he grabs his sword, and while Nazgul is going after Eowyn, he takes his sword and takes it against him, cuts the ligament of the back of the knee, and ultimately hurts. Anyway, it's very graphic. But what's beautiful about this story is that the courage of this woman, Eowyn, gave to Mary a courage he did not have. And if you can see the courage of your champion, Jesus, who gave his life for you, who laid down before all the powers of evil and death, when he did that for you, if you can see that, your fears can turn into amazement and you can rise up and be courageous in the strength that He provides for you. If you try to muster it on your own, you will always fall short, you know, like Saul did or like Goliath did. But if you can have a courage that comes out of an act of worship that sees what Jesus did for you, you can have a courage of a true champion because you can, as that Scripture said, when He's trying to encourage them, Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set on the right hand of the Father in heaven. Let us consider him that we do not weary, do grow weary, and give up hope. Let's look to Jesus. Let's place our trust in Jesus. Let us be willing to do whatever it is that God has for us, weak though we might be, and let us depend on Jesus to give us the strength to have the courage of champions. Let's, let's pray as we close. Lord Jesus, we come to you today knowing that we often are very weak people. We need your strength. Give us courage, we pray. Help us to see what you have done for us. Help us to respond in faith to it. Help us to be like the people of Israel, thankful that there is a champion who is our substitute, who won that battle for us. Help us then to face the battles that we have, looking into Jesus, drawing from Him the courage we need 
to face the difficulties in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.